When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast, Claire Dieterer, book critic, essayist and reporter whose new book is Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. It looks at the fairly modern dilemma many of us now face when navigating the cultural landscape amid cancel culture. How should we approach art and creative works made by those whose reputations have since gone off a cliff? Our host for this discussion is the acclaimed writer and journalist Lisa Tadeo, author of Three Women. It's a great discussion, but did you know if you're an Intelligence Squared member, you can get even more of where that came from. Head to intelligencesquared.com membership to sign up and you'll get the extended version of this chat, plus a ton of extra content, including our series on AI, Power Trip, ad-free listening and updates on our live events too. Or hit subscribe on Apple for just the audio. Now let's join Lisa Tadeo and Claire Dieterer in conversation. Claire Dieter is one of my all-time favorite writers, has been for a very long time. She is the author of Love and Trouble and the New York Times bestselling memoir, Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses. She's a longtime contributor to the New York Times and has also written for The Atlantic, Vogue, Slate, The Nation, and New York Magazine. Her new book is Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, and it is one of the most brilliant books I have truly ever read. So, Claire, uh, I am so truly just beyond excited to talk about this book with you. Uh, For anyone who has not read it yet, um, it is the, I think it's the consummate book on how to deal with artists who have not all been perfect. And I think as, as a, as an artist, I can say, and Claire says it in her book too, that we are either about to be canceled. We're like one step away from being everyone is everyone in the whole world. And I think that's the important, one important thing to sort of say at at the onset, but Claire deals with people, um, mostly men, but also some women. And that's a whole other section that I find I found just absolutely captivating of people who did kind of a little bit more than just the standard issue things that are other things that kind of you can't forgive in order to 
to consume the art or can you? Um, and I just think it's, I, I think that it's kind of the last word on all of that and not the last word because she gives you the answer, but the last word, because she asks absolutely all the questions. There is not one question left uncovered. No, it's like, it's just like, so it's an encyclopedia of how to consume art. Um, Anyway, so I'm just going to jump in. Early in the book, uh, you you present the idea of a calculator to balance the two elements, the greatness of the work against the terribleness of the crime, and with the hope that some sort of calculator might spit out a verdict that's like stream it or skip it. Um, and I'm always thinking, I'm trying to balance that in my head a lot. Um, the thing that I have been dealing with lately that I want your counsel on too, Claire, is my daughter who is eight is, um, in love with Michael Jackson. And, um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's just, she's loves his music. We, we took her to see the Broadway show and it's a real, uh, it's a real thing. It's like, you know, my daughter doesn't know anything about any of that stuff yet. Right. But she's enjoying this music and we're here at this sort of critical point like, you know, it's kind of the starting off point. Do we let another whole generation and all of the ones to fall, that come to appreciate and continue to lift up something that is, you know, that we that we know or kind of know has caused a lot of harm to some people? Um, so I guess I, I'd like you to sort of talk about that. Where where do you lie on that sort of for future generations? Like, do we do we teach them do we kind of teach them that they can listen to something in concert with knowing what else is there or do we shelve it completely if you in your perfect world yeah um that's kind of the question <laughs> yeah. um, so i just wanted to say thank you lisa for being here it's so great to see you and thank you hannah and intelligence squared for having me i'm just thrilled um future generations it's really interesting you bring up your eight-year-old daughter because there's this idea of innocence, mm -hmm. right? She doesn't know. And yes. the problem that most of us have with these artists is that we know their biographies or in the case of uh, Michael Jackson, what the accusations are, which are, you know, debated still. Um, and we sort of can't unknow it. So it's really interesting to think about the problem from the kind of projected point of view of somebody who's innocent of this knowledge, because the fact is that this person will not be innocent of knowledge for too much longer, you know, and that's sort of the kind of a core premise of the book is that learning about these artists' biographies is not a decision we make. Right. And that was sort of the way I first went into the problem. I started, I was thinking about uh, Polanski and Woody Allen, and there was this sort of immediate response when I brought up problems with their biographies that you, you know, sort of various critics or points of view saying you must separate the art from the artist. And, mm -hmm. you know, the bottom line is, I'm, I'm not willfully conflating biography and artist, right. it's just happening. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to think about it from a mother's point of view or a parent's point of view, or to put it, make that more writ large, this generation thinking about the next generation, right? I mean, because on some level, you are controlling what your daughter yeah. knows, so it's yeah. more complicated. Um, I don't really believe innocence is possible in that way. I don't believe that we can consume art without knowing the maker's biographies. That's, well, I mean, it's less a belief and more of an observation. Yeah. Um, 
So I think your daughter is doomed to knowledge. <laughs> Damn. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that becoming to knowledge is her job. And uh, I think that people are able, people are complicated and smart and can know things and still appreciate the art. You know, I was kind of that same word innocent came up when I was talking to an interviewer a couple months ago. And and he was lamenting, I, I write in the book about taking my children to see a Picasso show mm -hmm. where yeah. the placards and the gallery talked about the experiences of, you know, what is frankly abuse that the women <laughs> in the paintings had suffered at the hands of Picasso. And this interviewer said, wouldn't it be better if your kids could consume this art in innocence? Yeah. And I guess my question is, first of all, that's not going to happen. So what's the point of projecting that? But also why? Why, you know, it seems that we are able to continue to consume art and know what we know and how much not, you know, at certain points that knowledge becomes a blocker, right? It prevents you from continuing to consume the art. That's personal. That's different for each and every right. person. Right. Very long answer. No. Your daughter's going to find out and probably will still <laughs> love it. <laughs> and, you know, that's, and that's the other, the other part of it too, that, you know, um, I watched, uh, Finding Neverland and I, and you write in the book how you, um, you know, you didn't want to watch it, but you kind of knew, felt you had to. It's like sort of this, you know, responsibility slash obligation. Um, and knowing that once you do, things will be irrevocably changed, maybe. Um, and, you know, I have others, uh, people who that I know that are like, well, you know, that was never conf those allegations, you know, here's why that might not be true. There's all there's all of that in there, too, when there isn't like a, a an absolute conviction. Right. He's sort of he passed away before that stuff came, you know, before he could defend himself, that old defense. And I think, you know, that brought up another question for me is I think also you write that, you know, you're talking about Woody Allen and Polanski and you're like, well, Woody Allen's not as bad, whatever that means. Right. Something like that. And and there's that other part, too, that has that I was so intrigued by with the sort of calculator of it, the sort of what is bad and who is the arbiter of what is what is worse. And in your case, of course, you know, like you just said, oneself is the arbiter for oneself. Right. But there is something interesting about that. Like you have this a chapter on drunks and, you know, and then the chapter on, on women uh, abandoning mothers. Um, and I found myself kind of trying to like triangulate, like, okay, well that's okay. Cause it's that. And that's okay. Cause it's that. And this is okay. And I, I guess what is, do you do calculations for yourself now with artists that you loved slash love like Polanski? Do you calculate in that way? No. And I mean, like the calculator is a, is meant is a comic trope of us, of exactly what you just described yeah. of us sort of running these numbers in our brains yeah. and balancing this against that and so forth. And obviously, I mean, not obviously, but I think that that's not something that I was, you know, it's just so laughable is why I brought it forward because of course we yearn yes, for an answer, <laughs> a, a rational and absolute set of values to which we can turn. I think that's, you know, that's what people want. And the book is really, you know, the sort of project of the book across its entirety is about, it's really trying to lift up subjectivity 
and yeah. disrupt the idea. Sorry, I hate that word disrupt. Um, upset the idea of authority. I don't want to be a disruptor. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> upset the idea of authority because I think authority is where we get into trouble with these conversations. You know, the sort of you should separate the art from the artist or yeah. you should throw out every film Miramax ever made because of uh, because of Harvey Weinstein's crimes. And I think that I wanted to really push past that idea of authority into, first of all, a more subjective way of valuing the art. Because if you sort of think of it as this, this kind of balance between, okay, well, the art is this good and the crime is this bad, you know, which is sort of what the calculator is, yeah. you immediately come up against all kinds of squirreliness on both sides. Yeah but really importantly on the side of what art is important. And, you know, if we are going to sort of try to reach for an absolute, who gets to say what art is great? We immediately have a problem. Yeah. Like if you think about Bill Cosby, you know, the Dr. Huxtable was not a formative father figure in my life, but right. for other people, you know, from other who've had other historical experiences, it's a very different story. So am I supposed to decide for them? Right. Yeah. So there's this sort of like, there's a way of looking at the value of the art from a more subjective point of view that acknowledges the historicity and the kind of lived cultural, racial, historical experience of the viewer, which is something I write about, you know, that I want critics to do and that critics do. Yeah. You know, they they can foreground their own um, their own circumstances yeah. to kind of contextualize their criticism and, you know, sort of getting at the idea that the critics we often think of as authorities, that is historically has been white men, mm -hmm. don't necessarily always understand themselves as historical, culturally determined subjects because that subjectivity has been invisible to them, right? right? Because it's yeah. never been framed as other. So mm -hmm. that is one part of it is looking at the subjectivity of how and why we care about the art. And then of course, the cri the criminal or the wrongdoing is in lots of cases that something criminal has not occurred. But our experience of what that person has said or done is also based in our own subjective experience. Yeah. So like if you're a trans person and you loved Harry Potter mm -hmm. and you are reading J.K. Rowling's or hearing J.K. Rowling's statements on trans people, your experience of the art is more likely to be disrupted because of your subjective experience or right. if you've been assaulted when you learn of someone's assault. So on both sides, on the importance of the art and on the badness of the crime, there's just this incredible need to kind of back off and, and acknowledge subjectivity. Yeah. And that's the thing about this subject. It's so rife with bringing up more questions because it's, you know, I was talking to an artist friend of mine. We were talking about Picasso and I was telling her, I was like, I'm doing this event with the author of this. You have to read this. And um, she's an artist. And she was like, you know, when I found out about uh, she grew up and grew into her art feeling like an artist's biography um, should a painter's biography should not have anything to do with how their paint painting is regarded. But in the case of Picasso, like, and like you said at the beginning of this conversation, um, 
we are, it's not, oftentimes, and especially lately, we aren't even going to seek out these things anymore. They are just like, you know, you took your children to that show and the placards were on the wall talking about it. It was, it was linked like as part of the show. Um, and, and that's something, cause you know, as I, 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 as someone who always liked knowing about what the people that I was, the writers I loved, I liked knowing about their lives, but I hadn't come up against any of the monstrousness until I was older. Like I didn't really see it or get it. Um, and, but I just like knowing where they lived, where they grew up. It just, I was like, oh, if I live there, maybe I can write like, you know, that old classic. Thing. Right. There'll be a transmission. Exactly. exactly. Um, but I think it's so interesting, the sort of, of the, where we are now, the, the, we, we cannot, it's like, you know, with finding Neverland, you, you couldn't not watch it in a sense, you know, like it, there is a, there is, as you say, a responsibility because it's so there people are going to there's a like it's just a different world now and i think that that brings up so much um it's hard to i think it's hard to even it's hard to talk to other people it's one thing to have your own feelings about something and and decide and and have those but to talk to someone else about someone else like michael jackson or woody allen it 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 feels like it's become that there is almost no way to just isolate the art in conversation with others because it would almost be a um a, a the wrong thing to do societally and morally today would you agree with that or not <laughs> i think that some people think that it's the wrong thing to do mm-hmm. morally i think that there's sort of two parts of your questions. One one part is, are we morally obligated to know? Yes, exactly. The other part of the question is, are we morally obligated to then uh, try to do some kind of willful forgetting, or you know, are we more are we morally corrupt if we try to do some willful forgetting while we're consuming the art? Right. And I think the knowing um, is impossible not to do. I mean, I think that it's biography. And the ubiquity of biography is something that is a, very much a hallmark of our era. You know, I'm 56, and when I was a kid, you're talking about knowing about writers when you were young. And when I was young, it was very, it was very hard to know about yeah. artists that you cared about. You know, and I, you know, I would go to the record store and just pick out a record based on the cover, and yeah. you know, these pieces of art would just sort of land in our feet like they'd yeah. hurtled through space, and. Uh, you know, I, I write in the book about my friend who would wait for a new Beatles biography to come out. Like for years, he'd just like go to the bookshelf in yeah. the bookstore and look like, did one come? And now, of course, you can know every single solitary thing about the Beatles. And <laughs> this ubiquity of biography, you know, is how money is made now. Like yeah. that's it's what the capital of social media of of the internet is built upon is both the biography that we're consuming, but also the biography that we're creating online. I mean, this is all monetized and it's, you know, it's ever present. So it's knowing or not knowing. I, I do talk in the book about feeling like I should consume Finding Neverland, but in a sense, the, the consumption of Finding Neverland was uh, just a reinforcement or a restatement of something I already knew because it had already landed on my right. head, whether I wanted it or not. The shearing away uh, or the, for, the kind of willful forgetting to consume the art. I mean, I've 
I personally find that impossible. And yet I'm so deeply drawn to that kind of recovered innocence. You know, I don't want to lose whatever it is, the piece of whatever piece of art. I don't want to lose Gauguin and, and the looking at a Gauguin is now so complex. Yeah. Right. But I also think that that's, you know, I would love to have that back, but, but we're not going to. Yeah. Um, but I think that's part, I don't write about this in the book, but I think that's part of a larger problem about consuming art that we're living in the middle of, which is our experience of art is so mediated by the conversation around yeah. it now. And I'm going to say something name droppy, but it's name droppy by accident. So it's okay. <laughs> I act. Finally, on the street, met Carrie Brownstein of Slater Kinney um, while I was on book tour, yeah. and which was just like delightful. Yeah. And she was roaming around New York trying to find art she knew nothing about and would post nothing about so she could just look at it. Yeah. All she wanted to do was look at it. And wow. I think there was something, you know, that's something as I've talked about my own consumption of art, as I've been on book tour for this book, I've realized like that dream of consuming something and not thinking about what I'm going to say about it or what I've heard about it um, is something I, I, I'm, that's on my mind. And I wonder if I can do it. And I'm challenging myself to do it more and more. Go to the museum and don't take a photo, read a book and don't post about it. All yeah. that stuff. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's great. And I love, I love the idea of, of going around her going around finding, trying to find something like just, it's, it's kind of the, it's like the antithetical answer to what you're, it's like, it's, it's the dream of what, yes. Um, (laughs) in, um, in the anti-Semite, the racist and the problem of time, you discuss the idea that transgressions from another time period can be more easily forgiven because we as a society simply didn't know any better at the time that the crime was committed. Um, and I, I was, what I'm wondering is, were we, were people, are we just, is it just that we're such a watched people now or do you think that things have also changed that do you think there's been a sort of do you think we've evolved as a society to be a little bit more um condemning of people who are not of geniuses who are not you know who are not good people or are we just more watched Mm. Can you say, can you say more? Like, are we, you know, with, with me too, for example, you know, it's like, there's a sort of, um, there's a sense that we, as uh, we, as as a gender, as uh, as the female gender have, um, you know, aren't going to decided we weren't going to take it anymore, decided to really, you know, everyone sort of came together. Um, and is it that, or is it also that, we've, are we better because we are watching ourselves and like, you know, like if you're wandering around your house in the middle of the night, you know, like I, I, for example, would just like, I'll just, I'm just a mess. Right. But if I think I'm being watched, I might put my hair into a slightly like lovely (laughs) messy bun. And, you know, like, but I won't do that if I'm, I'm just like an absolute gargoyle. So I guess I'm saying, are we still gargoyles? Or how, or do you think that there's been a rise in our collective humanity? Right. Like, so I feel like what you're asking is, does the kind of eye of Sauron of justice make us into better people? Exactly. 
That's such a great question. <laughs> I think that it's, no, I don't okay. think that it makes us new people. And I think it's interesting to think about how, I mean, maybe this is a novelist question, but I think it's interesting to think about how our humanity is altered by this sense of always being sort of public. You know, I, I think that that's a really interesting question. It's not something I deal with in this book, but maybe maybe you should write about it. I think that's <laughs> super interesting. What I do think about Me Too is that the question of justice and whether or not behavior is altered by the what justice has been exacted by Me Too is, is sort of not in my purview. I do think that you know, in writing this book, I think that there was an expectation. I think that when you question the kind of core idea that geniuses are bad, so we should throw out their work, there's an assumption that you are questioning it from the center or the right. I think that people thought that this book, because I had written this essay, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men, that sort of in 2017 that introduced the idea of sort of maybe we all have some monstrosity in us and also maybe we can still consume the art. And I think that there was some expect there's some expectation in approaching this work that I'm going to say that it's going to somehow be in defiance of yes. me too. Or say that the project of Me Too is has has made it, you know, that has created cancel culture and therefore cancel culture has, you know, sort of ruined all of our experiences <laughs> of art. And, you know, just going back to first principles, the idea of Me Too is simply that you raise your hand and say something's wrong. Yeah. Right. And that is something that I do think what you're talking about, I do think the internet has facilitated that. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly it has. Yep. There's all kinds of justice movements that the internet has facilitated and then exploited and then turned back on itself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that core moment, I, I, I do think that we were able to have that moment because of this eye of Sauron internet thing. Yeah. But do I think that that itself, the watching makes people better? I, I just can't think that human nature could change so quickly. Yeah, no, I, I not so much that the watching makes them better, but that in in their being, not that the watching so much makes it makes people better, but that that some sort of shift occurred with watching plus you know more knowledge plus people. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, you've kind of answered my my question. I just don't know. It, yes. You answered my question. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, I, yeah. it's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's answerable. So yeah. Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> uh, so with, uh, let's go to cancel culture. Cause one of my questions was, you know, it, it's you there, you, you, you note the harm in it. And I'm curious with, you know, uh, you know, you have te teen children, uh, 20 something. Oh, okay. Sorry. I, but I'm sorry. But when they, when you, the, the Picasso was when they were in their. Yeah. Team. I've been writing this book for a long time. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, I was just, but I'm the reason I brought up the T because there is, you know, the teens in my life, there's a lot, there's, you know, they are the most sort of, um, ready and willing to, to, to cancel and, or, you know, defend people like who, anyway, my question is, um, what do you feel about about cancel culture 
going fo- where we are right now, because there there has been a sort of there's been a little bit of a reckoning to it and a little bit of a calming. But there also seems to be another rise happening right now. And I'm wondering what your sort of thought is now. You know, the book's been out for a, a little bit, how you feel about it and the reactions to it, that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, well, I don't, I mean, just, I, I personally used the term cancel culture earlier, which I never do. And I actually don't really believe in the term. I don't, when it comes up, I often sort of will just ask, well, what do you mean? I mean, it's, it's a lot of times what gets called cancel culture is often something that someone is doing who is younger than us or has less power than us. That's asking us if we're sure what we're doing is okay. Yeah. And that's a really great way of putting it. It's, you know, it's interesting as I've been out talking to people about this book, I, I do get people who are very concerned about cancel culture and they're often parents and they're often people whose children are teenagers or early twenties. And they're often people whose children are challenging them. And and they bring me these questions in the kind of suitcase labeled cancel culture. And it's like, well, maybe if you took it out of that suitcase and just yeah. looked at it, it's actually a conversation your child is trying to have with you. Right. And there's sort of, um, I'm personally really interested in that conversation. Yeah. I want yeah. to know more. I want to be challenged by younger people. Yeah. Um, I realized that this might not be the usual perspective, but I remember, I keep thinking of this woman who was in an audience in an unnamed American city and she was <laughs> maybe a little bit older than me. And she said, I just, I've had it with cancel culture. <laughs> I was sitting in the TV room the other day and my 20 something child is staying with me right now. And she came in and she said, mom, you can't watch that. That's terrible. And you know, all I was doing there doing was sitting there watching a movie where Fred Astaire appears in blackface. And I was like, wow, that's quite an ending to that sentence. <laughs> that right? is good. Cause I was like, I, I was kind of going along the whole way. And, exactly. then, it, and then it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, wow, way to end your sentence lady. So, which was just such a, anyway, so I just, you know, sort of directed her toward this idea that, well, I mean, I didn't say, I didn't explode about the blackface, but I just said, you know, your kid's trying to have a conversation with you and that's all it is. And so that is, I don't know. I'm just very skeptical of the concept of cancel culture altogether. I know maybe that's not exactly what you're asking, but that's been sort of my experience is it's been a generational conflict of older feminists or older women often trying to understand the point of view of younger people. That's been what I've seen when I've been sort of out there. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. There's more of this discussion and a special extended edit for Intelligence Squared members. Head over to intelligencesquared.com membership to sign up and get it all in one go, or just hit subscribe on Apple. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This 
is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.